so much of the success of them like bringing us in to present or not was just the sound of the recipe. Someone said chicken tinga fingers, and we thought it was just like the smartest thing ever. This is it. We've peaked. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Huesel here with editor in chief Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Jesse Shivshik, a talented food stylist, recipe developer, and author of a great new cookbook, Cookies, the New Classic. We talk about Jesse's unique creative process, where he comes up with the cookie name first and then backs into the actual recipe development. This is a bold move, and we talk about it. We also discuss his former life as a corporate recipe developer, helping develop concepts for major fast food and QSR chains like Buffalo Wild Wings, Sizzler, and the granddaddy of them all, Taco Bell. Here's my talk with Jesse. Welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. I mean, we were talking about Chicago before we started rolling. You're from Chicago. Yes. What's the one food in Chicago that defines Chicago that maybe people don't realize defines Chicago? Oh, man. Okay, I guess for me, there was this place called Ed's Potsticker House. And um, they're, like, known for making these potstickers that are, like, long, like, finger-shaped cigars almost. And I grew up just, like, driving down there. Like, my family drive down for, like, an hour and a half because I grew up pretty far outside of it. And then just like Ed's Podsticker House, whenever I go back, I have to eat there. It is like the best. If you're in Chicago, please eat there. What kind of style are these? Like what's the what's the fillings? What's the how's it made? So it's like a pork filling and it's almost shaped like like a lumpia almost, but like much, much longer. It's like maybe six inches and they're steamed, not fried. And they come in like this basket, just like stacked on top of each other. And they're so cool. And I've never seen anything like it. Shouts to them. And let's talk about pizza because my father's uh, from uh, Rogers Park and I have familiarity with Chicago. And, of course, we, we always uh, in food media refer to Chicago as a deep dish city in mm. referencing the pizza style. But then I recently had a conversation with my uncle who's also from Rogers Park. And he's like, no way, no, no effing way. It's all about the bar pie. It's all about the thin crust. What do you think, Jesse? What What's the Chicago definitive local style of pizza? Mm. Okay, I actually kind of agree with that. I have this theory that, like, people from Chicago don't really like deep dish pizza. I don't like deep dish pizza. Like, even Pequod's, which is, like, maybe the best version of it, I would still prefer, like, a thin, crispy pizza. So I truly think it's a scam. It's like lasagna almost. Like, it's not even pizza. It's good. Yes, I'll eat it, but... If you're from Chicago, I truly believe you don't like deep dish pizza. Well said. I agree with you fully. Thank you. Pequod's is great. Uh, the whole entire genre of deep dish pizza is a scam. Yes. That's why you find it at malls. Yes. That's why it's Uno's like, is everywhere. The city like pumped money into it to get people to come or something. Uh, this is not a pizza podcast. This is a cookie podcast today. And I just want to say from the jump, when you look at a food group and you say, okay, I'm going to create new classics of a very beloved food, that is really, really hard. But Jesse, you've done it with the book. Mm. I, I've 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 been able to spend some time with it, at least in the digital sense. We're recording this in September, so I haven't actually had the book in hand. But man, you know what was it about the cookie that really made you write this book? Mm. I think it was, I guess, two things. Like personally, 
these cookies, like, I guess, like, reinterpretations of classics is personally something I'm interested in. And then second, so I wrote this during the pandemic, and I feel like with baking, there was kind of, like, less gratification baking familiar things. I guess I heard people say that, and I felt that myself. So I feel like if people are going to continue baking like they were during the pandemic, the payoff has to be something new and, like, stimulating and gratifying and, like, feels cool and it feels fresh. And I wanted to create those because it's what I wanted to bake, and I think it's really what people wanted at the time or now. Yeah, it's really savvy that you you, you latched onto the cookie because on taste we've covered so many aspects of the cookie, you know, the ratio of chocolate ch- chocolate and chocolate chip cookies, different uh, flavor combinations. And I'm seeing in your development, I'm seeing malt, I'm seeing tahini and sesame, I'm seeing mint, I'm seeing booze, I'm seeing tropical fruits. I'm seeing some vegetables. So are these the modern, is this the modern classic that we're seeing in all these flavor combinations? Are we going outside of the chocolate chip cookie? Yeah, I think definitely. And I think that's what people want. I think the hard part is like with these flavors and these ingredients, like typically recipes that use them are quite complicated. And so I wanted to do cookies because they're like familiar, they're comfortable, they're nostalgic. So people are cool with making cookies. And then I wanted to make them super easy to make. And then also just like give you all the information you need to make them. So then, you know, home bakers can make these like, quote, new classics and like these really cool and like unusual flavor profiles and feel that like coolness when they make it, like feel like I created something that's really edgy and I want to share with my friends. So I think like taking those ingredients and just like packaging them in a way that's like, people can actually make them and make results that they feel proud of was like pretty much the thesis of the book. Totally. And I see that throughout the development of the book. I see lots of, I think the the, the cookability, the bakeability is, is quite there, but there's real, there's real ingenuity with the use of these products. I really, mm-hmm. I really get that. How do you look at a, like a, a recipe development project? Like how do you actually think about creating a modern classic? How do you, in your brain, do you, how do you test these recipes? Mm. I guess in my past, I've had staff jobs that are like super, super, I guess, commercial or for the masses. So at BuzzFeed Food or the kitchen. So I have that knowledge. And like, I'm always thinking like, make this super easy and like, give them all the information they need. And then selfishly, I think I want to do things that are like pushing the boundaries or like more artful or like bridging the gap between like chef and home baker. So I feel like that's how I always kind of approach them. And with this book, it's funny because when I sent in the manuscript or, like, the idea of the book, I listed all 100 recipes, like, the name of them, because I love just, like, names that sound cool or, like, flavors that sound cool. And then from there, I backed into actually making them, which was kind of like a, oh, crap (laughs) moment, but that's where I started. (laughs) That's, like, almost like, it's like a puzzle. Give me one example of, like, just the name that came to your head. Like, give me one. Yes. So, like, red wine brownie cookies is a good example. It's in the boozy chapter. Um, it sounds cool. I mean, it sounds like it tastes good. And then I got to it and I'm like, oh, like adding liquid to cookie dough, actually, you can't do that. So it became this whole thing when I like made them maybe like 12 times and I realized, oh, what I have to do is like cook down the butter to take out the water from the butter and then reduce the sugar and the wine together and then like put that proportion to like the liquid that came out of the butter. So it was definitely like uh, I would run into a lot of these concepts that sounded cool and then were a pain to make. And it was just like 
honing in and making it over and over again until it's actually super easy and like feasible for people. So that's basically, I did that a hundred times over. You did it 100 times. And did you use a lot of your culinary school training when you're doing this? Like you, you went to the CIA, hmm. you are trained, uh, and not every cookbook author on the taste podcast is formally trained. You know, it, it oftentimes, you know, it'll be a passionate home, home cook or baker, but your trade, did you really lean into that training in this development process? That's an interesting question, actually. Um, so I have no baking formal training. Sick. I, sorry, you paused. I was like, okay, so he's saying the CAA was maybe not worth the money. <laughs> well, yeah, I could talk about that forever. It's not. but <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, Yeah, so I didn't study baking or pastry. I guess maybe the only influence I have from CIA is like gravitating towards like salty and savory and maybe like acidic flavors. But in terms of like technical skills... I think it was honestly like my home baking that got me here and just like being friends with the bakers that I could text and like leaning on them. And also like my mother is like a great baker. So in terms of like CIA paying off, um, I don't think they had anything to do with this cookbook. So you're going to speak there at graduation, it seems like. Oh, yes. As long as they pay me well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Speaker fee. Right. Speaker fee. Exactly. You're going to get some of that money back. Um, So, But tell me about growing up. Like your mother is a baker. What were some of the recipes and and kind of your favorites um, that she made for you? Sure. Yeah. So she actually owned a candy business out of our home. So like when my sister and I were young, I think she wanted a way to like take care of us, but also make money. So she opened, it was a caramel business and she would make caramels out of our home. And it became like the sensation almost in like our small town, like among hairdressers and just like everyone that they, they loved her caramels. It was called Caramelot. And she would just like pump out caramels from our home kitchen and sell them. And I remember like holidays, they were just coming in and out. So she just like kind of introduced me to like the sweet world and... I guess when I went to CIA, I like was like, oh, I'm rebelling. I'm doing the savory. And then, well, it turns out it went back to sweet. So <laughs> I got questions about caramels right here. I'm just like, my mind is kind of blown. So caramel, are we talking yes. like a medieval theme? In the, I no, I mean, it had like a cool little crown as the logo. Crown. But so you have some, a little bit of that going on. With the yeah. Logo. Okay. So she pretty, she had like a few things she made, but the thing was just caramels, like all caramel. Right. She had one kind and it like. It did not have fancy salt or anything. It was just like a very, very good chewy caramel. Next question was about the salt. So like salted mm. caramel became this flavor uh, maybe 15 years ago. Mm. Was she early salt caramel hive or was she like, did she follow the trend? Mm. I think she was definitely earlier than most people, especially where we were living. I remember she had flaky sea salt, but I don't recall her ever like selling salted caramels or marketing that way. So she was never like an adopter in like a marketing sense. Totally fascinating. And, and I, I just much respect to a caramel maker. It's like temperature and humidity. And it's yeah, just it's so hard. Really and hard. it's like scary once you pour the stuff in. Yo, I know. It's scary. I've never tried. I mean, I'm a like caramel apple once in a while. Mm. So back in the caramel tip, what's the caramel cookie? Like what's the tribute cookie to your mom's caramels? Mm. Do you have one? Maybe subconsciously there is a caramel cookie and it's it's filled with caramel. It's like a cashew cookie and you mm. rip it open, it has caramel inside. And that one was, yes, it was a pain to develop. And I remember on set when we were shooting it, like we got this perfect pull shot. And so Drew was the second stylist who styled it with me. And then he, I guess I was very excited. I didn't know. And he was like, that was the first time someone screamed at me on the set. Because I was like screaming. So I was so excited. We got this caramel <laughs> pull that was so beautiful. <laughs> 
I was like, the first time I screamed that. that I was like, you were getting cr- – no, but this is this all makes sense. Positive scream, yeah. You were excited. Let's talk about photography. I mean, Chelsea's phot- photos are incredible. Yeah, Chelsea's amazing. And it really does make a book, like f- yes. for pastry especially. Like, got to have great photography. So how does that work um, when you have 100 cookies? And how are you – are you making them all ahead of time? Are you making them all a minute? How does that work exactly? Yeah, so – because cookies are such like a long process, we had three people on food. So it was Drew Eichley and myself like co-food sell the book because I was like, oh, if I do this by myself, it's going to be too much. And then we had an assistant, um, Ben Weiner, who's like a super talented pastry chef in New York, and he was assisting us. So we maybe got ahead like 15 cookies. And then so we'd start shooting there and then... Drew and I would swap off, like one would be baking and then one would be on set. And then Ben was in the kitchen the whole time, just like pumping out cookies. So most of them were pretty much fresh out of the oven when we shot them. Yeah. That's it. I mean, I was wondering um, how many ovens you had going on. We had one oven and it was like we were shooting in Hello Artist Studio, which is like a beautiful photo studio. But it's definitely like more like photo lifestyle versus food. So we just had like this upstairs so it was on a separate floor too we had an upstairs tiny just little home apartment kitchen oh my lord are you serious wow yeah it's it's cool to hear the behind the scenes stuff because um you know at taste a few years ago we did our own cookie issue a little mini thing it was like a dozen cookies and it was challenging it was something yeah. 100 wow yeah and yeah and like the team that i had was like incredible and like from like before the book was ever even a thing, I was like, I want to work with this very specific team. And if we don't work with them, I actually don't want to make the book. God bless. Like just drawing that line in the sand, line yeah. in the flower. Yeah, we shot maybe 15 test cookies in Chelsea's living room with the prop stylist months before the proposal went out for sale. And like, I want them to look like this. This is the team. And like, yeah. Awesome. I mean, having that vision going in is so key for the mm. book. So bravo. Okay, so I am not going to let this go. I was res- researching you um, last night before our interview, and I came across your LinkedIn, as I naturally do. And I came across this line, and I'm just going to read it. Tested and developed menu concepts for several of the top 500 restaurant concepts, including Buffalo Wild Wings, Taco Bell, and McDonald's. Jesse, please take us okay. back to this job. Yes, this is a very weird job. So it was my first job out of college. And I wanted to work in recipes in some capacity, and I guess I thought R&T was um, similar. Um, so I worked there only, like, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe. Um, Wait, like, that's a long time, though. Yeah. Maybe a long time, man. Yeah, it felt like a long time. Um, I did not prefer the job, but it was crazy. Basically, it was like a culinary marketing firm, and they had maybe, like, 10 chefs, like R&D chefs. And we would pitch, like, paper concepts, they were called, which were just, like, ideas to go on menus and then we send them off to the culinary teams at like buffalo wild wings was the one i went to several times i went to taco bell many times and then we come into their test kitchen and basically do like a presentation like here's all our concepts and like cook them for them and it was just like a really complicated and unsatisfying job because there's so so many layers like getting anything on these menus like oh like we can't use that tortilla because it'll piss off our chip company so then like Uh cut that like and so I worked there a year and a half, and nothing I ever developed oh, made no. it to a menu. Oh, that was my next question. I was like, nothing. are you behind the integration of Cool Ranch no. into... Uh. Like, the closest thing I have is, like, 
a barramundi, which is a type of fish, sure. on a sizzler menu. And, like, that's the closest thing I have to anything. So it was just, like, such a weird job. I worked a lot on Taco Bell breakfast, too, but nothing I worked on there made it to Taco Bell breakfast. It was crazy. I think there's, like, thousands of people doing what I do who just, like, pump ideas into these QSRs. And then they, like, kind of take them from there. I'm sure there's a whole industry of of freelancers, too, who are doing these paper recipe concepts. Yeah, totally. What was the best idea that you had that, like, they're just totally, they're absolutely just blowing it by not having it on the menu? I'm putting you on the spot here, I know. Okay, I actually don't know. But I do remember we were, like, the chefs were sitting in, like, a brainstorm room. And, like, so much of the success of them, like, bringing us in to present or not was just the sound of the recipe. And I remember someone said chicken tinga fingers, and we thought it was just like the smartest thing ever. And of course, not one single QSR picked it up. <laughs> You're like, this is a slam dunk. Yes. Chicken tinga finger. I like, don't even know what that means. But I remember all of us were like, this is it. We've peaked. I mean, tinga, yeah, I like it. It has a ring. Um, I feel like I would put it on if I was like a Taco Bell or even like a local chain that was kind of rivaling Taco Bell. I think we maybe pitched it to Buffalo Wild Wings. Oh. Yeah. But I remember we were all just like, this, we've peaked. Yeah. I mean, I, I respect this this year and a half commitment uh, to the job. I mean, you... It was a lot of traveling. What do you mean? Because we'd go to the actual test kitchen. So I'd go to like Irvine, California. It's like cook in the big Taco, Taco Bell. Bell down there, right? Yeah. So I went to Taco Bell many times. Oh, my God. Taco Bell campus is so beautiful and everyone works there was also so beautiful. It was very shocking. I was invited to go to Irvine once. I could not make it happen, but I was very disappointed. I was going to get a tour of the Irvine campus. It's like really nice. I mean, is there a dream restaurant you'd want to develop for? Do you have like a favorite that you respect their menu so much that you would actually throw them a bone? Oh, um, that's a really good question. I think Panda Express is like top, top tier food. Absolutely agree. I don't know if I could develop. I don't know if I have the skill, but so good. Absolutely agree. It's it's wonderful. It's a it's a it's a it's a national treasure. It really is. Back to cookies because I I just have like these thoughts in my head. Like I'm I'm a baker and I'm really bad at it. What are some of the mistakes I can avoid? Mm. I think uh, the biggest mistake I learned through seeing cross testers bake these is how they measure flour. And I'm not like talking about grams like that's cool you should do that but i'm talking like cups so i would send out the recipes and then they'd come back say like my dad did a few and he's not a great baker and they were so like tiny and they didn't spread so i got so frustrated to the point where i'm like let me watch you make these so i watch him and what a lot of people do is they will shove the cup in a bag of flour and like jam it against the side so then i weighed that and it's like almost half a cup more flour per cup So if your cookies aren't spreading at all, that's honestly probably it. So throughout the book, I had like this meltdown with Raquel, my editor. And on every single place that says flour, it says spooned and level flour in the book. I mean, you have to keep repeating that. Yes. We're Americans, man. We, we, we need more. Like we uh, more, 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 more. So we, like I feel that tendency will always be there to shove the highest amount of quantity into yeah. that measure. And right? like my friend who tested, she told me like home at class, that's how she was taught to do it. I'm like, oh my gosh. I don't know if like Blue is like you know, taking, I just don't know why I thought about his name or, or you know, I don't think Angela Demayuga is like getting her chops from her home ec class. <laughs> <Just 'cause, laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> I wouldn't, no offense to the home ec teachers out there, but I mean, that's just bad practice. Right yeah. There. So I, I like had this complete break. I'm like, I can't write the cookie book. These book, like the cookies are not going to turn out how I want them. 
And then they're like, just write down on every page. I'm like, yeah. I guess that's as close as I can get to like how I want it to be. Okay, let's just be super clear to for the taste podcast listeners. Like, let's step by step. You've got your empty measure. You've got your bag of flour. What hmm. are you doing exactly? Okay. So, like, best practice is you take a little spoon. You fluff up, like you fluff up your flour, and then you spoon it into your cup, and you take like the twine of the spoon, and you just like level it off, and that's fine. That will give you like pretty much close to like the perfect gram weight of a cup of flour. And you're not like no padding down. It's like no. very light, like no. light hands. Are you thinking? Yeah. So like whenever like a recipe developer says a cup of flour, it's like honestly just like the least amount of flour that can fit into that cup versus the most, which I think a lot of people think that's what it is. That that right there is it. I love that. It's really smart. It's like the least amount, not the most amount. Like, like let's book that. That's the tag for this interview. Yeah. And it makes a huge, huge, huge difference. Like like, full-on breakdowns I was having when I saw some of these cookies until I realized why. <laughs> I mean, but first, I mean, like, really, you got to invest in a digital scale. It costs six, seven, eight, nine yeah. dollars. It makes such a difference. Yeah. And, like, after writing cookbooks, I only bake f- things that are written in grams, to be honest. You have to. So you have both measures in your in your book. Yeah, I have both in the book. That's good. I like that. So what else are you working on? What's, what's, in, the, what's in the pipeline? Mm. You know what? I don't know. Everyone's like, oh, what's the next book i'm like i honestly can't think of that right now but i think like after such a intense like editorial year i had with the book i'm interested in just like focusing on styling gigs to be honest like i'm styling someone else's cookbook coming up and i feel like it's nice to have that balance since i do both i'm like i'm fatigued on writing and editing i'd like to just like focus on photos and then i can like swap back and forth Guilty of asking that question. Thank you for for, for for straightening the ship. But what does a food stylist do? Like, d- mm. d- describe that because I think it's so important in a book. It's not what the it's not the authorship. It's the food stylist. What are you doing? Mm. Yeah, food styling is a crazy job. It's a ton of planning and it's a ton of like distilling what the author or company actually wants. So in this instance, like it was nice to be my own stylist with Drew because there was no back and forth like which often makes the art worse. But yeah, it's a ton of planning. It's a ton of like coordinating with props and photo. Just like, how can we, it sounds easy. Like, how do we make this look as beautiful as possible? But it's like a totally convoluted process when you have like so many players involved. So it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity, super refreshing to style my own work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Give me one good nightmare food styling gig that you've had. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, There's more than one, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. It's a tough job. Honestly, a majority of them can be nightmares. Yeah, they're hard. I can't think about that time I had, but I do remember, like, when I was in college, I took an internship at Bon App, and, like, they put me on duties to help stylists. And my very, very first day in foodie media, when I was an intern, they gave me, like, a pair of tweezers, and they had me tweeze individual hairs out of, like, this beautiful heritage, like, pig, like, meat they were shooting. Like like the leg or something or like yeah, the, the, it was the like, trotter or something? Yeah, and I just sat there and I plucked away at like several ones until they got a beautiful one. That's like gangster. Yeah, I, I like, mean, there's okay. been a lot said about old BA versus new BA, uh, not to be said on this, not to be relitigated, but that's pretty gangster to ask you to pull hairs. Mm, yeah, it was definitely like the crew, it was like 2011, so the crew there definitely ran it more like a, like a back of house kind of vibe. 
yeah, it was like the Mary Frances Heck days and stuff. So it's all like like chef chefy people. Totally, and like I and I'm kidding, of course, because I think you know Swanye attitudes in the back of uh, the house is is key, and the Swanye attitudes in the uh, test kitchen is key. So. Uh, what else did you learn at that gig at BA? I guess just like recipe testing because the intern's job was to be like essentially the final cross tester after it's been tested. So just being okay cooking not naturally, like being so tuned in and taking your time with like weighing things, like put volume and grams and timing things. So basically I learned how to cook like a test kitchen person versus like a normal human. <laughs> like... Did you ever develop a recipe or test a recipe that you felt just wasn't your style? That wasn't, you weren't vibing with it? Mm, I mean, always, even to this day. Yeah, totally. It's like, as a recipe developer, I guess, it's rare to, like for cookies, it's rare to put my own point of view into things. And oftentimes I'm developing things that maybe I don't like jive with, to be honest. And it's like my responsibility to be like, how can I get this to a place where like, I'm okay with it, my point of view, and also, like, whoever's paying me to do this is. Yeah, it's, like, the grand negotiation because your name totally. is on the gig and, yeah. like, you want to make sure it's good work, but, like, you might not agree with it. So that's, that's smart. Yeah, yeah, like, ghostwriting seems like the dream sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is the dream. Yeah, absolutely. So we might be out of the COVID world this holiday season or, you know, who knows. Um, but say we were out of it and you could host a small vaxed up Mm. cookie swap mm. i've thought about this actually well, what's it gonna be like what, what's i mean mm. the pressure's on i guess for your guests but what's that scene gonna be like well okay there's two things the first is that like my friends are joking that they want to host a small party when they all cook something on the book and then i just like super harshly judge them <laughs> who made <laughs> the that. best cookie <laughs> and then second for like a, a launch party or something like that i haven't thought through but i would love to do actually like a bake sale personally like maybe i partner with some of my baking friends and like we sell cookies and it like doubles as kind of like a cookbook launch and then i would love to like donate all proceeds to someone like gays against guns or someone like i care about that would be really great we yeah. certainly retweet that and, and put in our newsletter i hope mm. you, do, you do it like you said in the podcast so you should do it yeah i mean i yeah i need to figure out i want <laughs> there's like this grocery store in brooklyn um i like want to be like hey do you want to host this i love that idea i'm sure you'll have some offers for that I just I've been racking my brain during this conversation. I want to come up with like a Midwestern pastry that or a baked good that we can talk about. And I've been thinking while we're chatting and, and it just hit me. What do you think about puppy chow? Mm. Do you subscribe to puppy chow as like a good thing? Mm -hmm. um, or do you know what it is? Yeah, Describe yeah, of course. It. Uh, puppy chow is like, I guess, like rice checks cereals. And then you melt peanut butter and chocolate maybe butter and like you toss it in it so it like fills the check cereal and then you pour that into like a bag with like a legit pound of powdered sugar legit it's a yes. lot. It's, it's crazy amount. and then you just like shake it around until you get like these little white pebbles and that is puppy chow listener it's, it's good jesse's face is like smiling but cringe like it's i mean yeah <laughs> it's honestly it's pretty good it's something like as you eat it, you're like, okay, I know that, like, the theory of this is maybe gross for me, but it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I'll eat it, like, if it's there. Real Rene Rezepi shit right there. I know. I'm just like, Jeez. God, this was my concept. <laughs> okay, Jesse, we ask everyone on the Taste Podcast, what is the cookbook or food book you would write with unlimited time, unlimited resources, time travel even? Mm. 
What would it be? I would honestly love to just make like a very expensive high gloss art book. Like a coffee table book when I'm just like, okay, I love these photographers. I love these stylists. Let's just have some fun. And let's just make like a beautiful, huge art book that sells for like $80 that like no one's going to buy. Yeah. I mean, that'd be my dream. And it's like really stupid and doesn't help anyone. But I would love that. (laughs) Like I want to drill in this a little bit. So what would the actual... Like, is there a concept? Like, mm. is there, like, a food that you think deserves the um, Rizzoli treatment, so to mm. speak? Yeah, I think it, it would be, like, a very extensive baking book just because of the length. And, like, I do love the combination of, like, actually helpful, like, recipes and writing with really kind of just, like, for me art. So it would basically, I guess it would be, like, essentially a baking Bible that's just, like, obscenely graphic and artistic. I think it's going to happen. I mean, I would love to. Yeah, it's it's hard because on, like, that level of photography, it's like all your money is pumped into that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're not going to make any money on this thing. Of course not. No. I mean, <laughs> and, like, it's going to sell, like, no copies. But it's Van- going to get, like, all the awards. Awards and Vanity Project. No, I love it. You're, you're dreaming big. Jesse, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. Hey, Anna, what is up? What's up? We decided we wanted to talk a little bit about the fall cookbook season. It is the season, and, and there's so many great titles. So we, there's some books that we have uh, had in our hands and we've cooked from. There's other books that we've only seen as a as a PDF. Uh, we've also um, not even seen PDFs. We've actually just seen the Steam Pages News preview or the Amazon previews. But Anna, what are some of the books that you're most excited about right now? Well, there are plenty of fall cookbooks that I've had the chance to cook out of a little bit, and even authors who we've interviewed in our taste newsletters. This summer, I cooked a little bit from Pasta by Missy Robbins and Talia Baiocchi. I cooked the lobster fra diavolo from that book. It's really cool. I really recommend it. I wrote about this book and interviewed Missy a few weeks back, and I have to say it's it's just a stunning book. Um, Talia is a is a friend and former colleague, and you know we've been f- tracing the book through its production, and and really it's remarkable. They're 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 really detailing how to make 40, over forty five pastas, and I, I just love the way that they weave um, the narrative of a re- of regional Italy um, and and the photography from regional Italy with this real like kind of instructive CIA level detail that's the Culinary Institute of America, not the spy agency, just to be clear for anyone who doesn't know. But I, I love that book. Um, I haven't had a chance to make any pasta because I don't think I'm a pasta guy. It's a big uh, time investment to actually like make the pasta from hand. I mean, one of the things that's cool about this book is that they also recommend a few of their favorite dry pastas. So um, you're not totally on the hook for making pasta from scratch if you're not up to that task. Very true. Another book I'm loving is Brian Terry's Black Food. He's edited this book, and there's contributors from all over the food world. There's there's poetry. There's fiction. And I, I think this book is going to – it's the start of Four Color, which is an imprint um, within 10 Speed Press. And I think Brian – I got to catch up with him a few months ago. It has really started uh, – he's planted the seed for a, for a really cool thing here. Uh, and are there any other books you're loving right now? I just, this weekend, I made the Bosom from Cooking at Home with uh, David Chang and Priya Krishna. 
And that book is really fun. It really like brings together the spirit of both of them as writers and as home cooks. And there's a lot of there's a good sense of humor in that book. I agree. I and Priya um, is on the podcast where I'm not sure if it's going to be upcoming or if it's already uh, aired. But that's a great conversation we have about this book. But I love the idea that they don't really see eye to eye on everything. And that's a great point of view for a cookbook to have some kind of disagreement or some argument. Do you want to argue on our podcast, Anna? Well, I, do, I mean, we need the controversy first. Yeah. <laughs> we need to discover the dish that we cook really differently first. <laughs> yeah, like puppy chow. What about that one? <laughs> <laughs> there aren't too many ways to make puppy chow. It's true. All right, so you're from Buffalo. I'm from West Michigan. This seems to be maybe like an east of Buffalo, west of Buffalo situation happening here. Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it's a great recipe. Make sure to check out the Taste article forthcoming. Okay, so some other books that we wanted to cover. Uh, and these are books that I, the ones I will be speaking about, I haven't really got, been able to hold them yet. You know, I haven't gotten a copy, I haven't bought a copy or been sent the copy. Actually, a couple books dedicated to pizza. Yeah, pizza is a hot topic this season. Like, what's the book that you're most excited to cook out of? Well, it's a good topic because the pizza book has been done over and over, like Betty Pizza is a cool book, Pizza Camp. We've got Peter Reinhardt's got a pizza book. Mark Vetri's got a pizza book. Roberta's just has done their second book, and they have pizza in there. I think pizza is one of those kind of like topics that will always be covered within cookbooks. So the more pizza books that are written, I feel like we 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 get into a challenging place where we we don't want to repeat information. We want it to be original. But we also don't want to force it and make it feel like it's something contrived, right? That's always the challenge. You want to be original but not contrived or being different for the sake of being different. So again, my big preface here is I have not looked at these books, but I like uh, The Joy of Pizza. I like the idea of this by, by Katie Parla and Dan Richer. I think that Dan Richer is this guy. He runs Raza in New Jersey. And Pete Wells famously called it the best pizza in New York, even <laughs> though it's in New Jersey. Have you been there? I have. Yeah. I love that that's a little bit of a troll to like all New York pizza, calling the best New York pizza this place in New Jersey. But it is so good. It's really awesome. I've not made it there. I, I've need, I've wanted to. But I think this book with Katie, who's you know written books about Italy um, and has collaborated on other books, like she wrote, I, I believe, a, a bread book recently. But she has a real eye for detail and storytelling. And I'm curious to see how this Raza, this pizza is defined for the home cook. So I'm just really curious about that. And it's interesting, like pizza, of course, there are so many pizza cookbooks out there. But recently, there are all these new at-home pizza ovens that are available for home cooks. So it's like becoming a little bit easier for home cooks to make really restaurant-quality pizza at home. Really good point about that. And we've, we've kind of in our edit meetings have marinated on the idea of like, let's do a pizza column. Let's do pizza at home using these new apparatus. Do you feel like these pizza ovens are going to be like kicked to the corner like the sous vide machine has been, in my opinion, now that we're maybe getting out of the pandemic? Maybe not. But do you think it's a trend or are these like pizza ovens here to stay? What do you think? I think they're here to stay. I mean, you know, I think if you make pizza at home, it's still it might be something you only do two or three times a year. But I think people will still be pulling out their pizza ovens 
those two or three times a year. I have a second pizza book, and it's really, really, really interesting and close to me. It's called The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guy by Steve Dolinsky, a.k.a. The Hungry Hound. He's like a Chicago institution. I've been on his podcast. He used to host one with Rick Bayless. So what he's doing here, and this is actually his second book about Chicago pizza, which I I really didn't think there'd be room for two books about Chicago pizza, but Steve Dolinsky has proven us wrong. You can have two books about Chicago pizza. But what he's doing here is he's really kind of drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, okay, there's people who believe that Chicago pizza is more of a tavern style pizza, very thin, served in bars, very much pepperoni, not a lot of sauce, more cheese. And then there's, of course, the Chicago deep dish, which everyone knows. You can buy them in most malls at Uno's or Douay's or whatever it's called with cheese on the bottom, sauce on the top. Very, like, lard, heavy crust. It's like soup, basically. It's like soup in a bread bowl is what I would call that. I would call it. That's really good. Soup in a bread bowl. I mean, it's an effing casserole, if you ask me. Yeah, it's a casserole. I say this is close to me because I my family's from Chicago, and they grew up, I believe, uh, my uncle, my father, my two, my two uncles, my father, they grew up eating more of the tavern style, the thin slice, uh, and not this, like, Uno's downtown stuff. Anyways, this book looks cool. Steve Dolinsky wrote it, The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide. Anna, give me one of your favorite books you're looking forward to. So it's interesting that you have two uh, pizza books on your um, on your two-cook list. I have two baking books on my list. I think, you know, I'm, I don't even bake that much, but baking cookbooks are so fun to me because baking feels like sort of a celebratory thing, sort of like a fall-winter thing. So I'm really excited about Baking with Dory, which is the latest from Dory Greenspan. Legend, living legend, absolutely. Total legend. She's uh, She's been a guest on the Taste Podcast before. I, I've cooked from many of her books in the past. And she has um, one of her recipes, which has gone incredibly viral over the years, is her world peace cookies, mm-hmm. which are really cool. It's like a chocolate shortbread that's packed with chocolate chunks. But this new book is full of sort of like beyond the cookie baking. So I'm really excited to dive into that. Right on. And I, I mean, I love about Dory. You know, she writes from the, like the, the French gaze, like she lives in France and has always been able to bridge Northeast USA and France and has a real point of view that I think is beloved um, in the industry and and for home cooks and bakers. It's so true. Yeah, definitely. My other baking pick is Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking by Cheryl Day. Um, So Cheryl Day is the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. I actually have never been to Savannah, but I'm dying to go, especially um, for some of the food options and especially Cheryl's bakery, which sounds awesome. Do you know what is she famous for? Do you get a sense from like is there like a is there a classic recipe or is it just Southern baking? It's a lot of like classic Southern baking. I think that she's originally from Atlanta, maybe, oh, cool. but she actually we have a recipe from Cheryl published on Taste for her Country Captain chicken salad, which is kind of like her tribute to this Georgian classic. I've been to Savannah myself, and I went there for a bachelor party on St. Patrick's (laughs) Day. Wow. It's just like a cliche bingo card. It was real. It was all, and there was definitely beer funneling um, happening. This was maybe like 12 years ago. 
and uh, I, I need to go back and, and have less uh, green beer this time around. Yeah, there's so much more to eat and drink in Savannah. Speaking of green, segue alert. One book that I'm really curious about, and I, I saw Paul Forbes had called it out in her in her preview on Stain Pages News, which is a great preview. I shout out to that. It's called Rust Belt Vegan. And uh, it's cool because obviously it says exactly what it is in the title, which is important with the cookbook. Um, seemingly, these are recipes that have been pulled from the Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, upper Midwest states. But it, it promises to kind of rethink these dishes in the with the in a vegan lens. Recipes that have been teased in the in the promotional materials include the Hungarian paprikash, the Slovak kolaches, and Cincinnati chili. All dishes that seemingly have meat in them and dairy products, but have been made vegan. What do you think about this? This is fascinating because when I think of Rust Belt cooking, you know, I'm from Buffalo, like lot of garbage plates in sort of like central and western New York, a lot of chicken wings. But when I think about this like whole regional cuisine, I think of a lot of like meat and potatoes, um, a lot of Eastern European influence. So I am really excited to see how this topic is tackled in a vegan way. It reminds me of the Mississippi Vegan book that came out a few years ago where um, that author was also rethinking regional cuisine with the vegan lens. And I'm interested. I, I you know, I don't cook too many vegan dishes uh, intentionally. I just It ends up just happening for me. But um, I'm looking forward to it. Do you have another book, Anna? Oh, yeah. Um, I am excited to dig into Flavors of the Sun by Christine Sahadi Whelan. Uh, Christine is the fourth generation owner of Zahadi's in Brooklyn, which is just a legendary store. If you've never been, um, definitely hit it up on your next trip to New York. It's it's actually been around since the 1800s. Um, and it's just like it's the place I go if I need like a pound of a really specific type of pistachios or like if I need to re-up my nigella seed supply or like a really specific spice or nut. Rose water. I mean, their cold section is filled with hummus and baba ganoush and 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 some of those dishes with more of a Lebanese style. You know, I used to live near Zahadi's and I think uh, one thing I always went for was the bulk candy. Oh, yeah. The candy. Yeah. Candy baking supplies, both awesome. They're... um, like freezer case full of different types of phyllo dough is so exciting. Yeah, it's a great store. And, I, and it's cool that they're getting their tribute in book form. Um, I'll definitely check that out. Another book I had on my list um, is Sandra Katz, who is kind of the fermentation guru in the United States. And he has his, a, another fermentation book, but this is called Fermentation Journeys, Recipes, Techniques, and Traditions from Around the World. So Sander has done The Art of Fermentation, which is one of his his classic books on the art, but also The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, which I believe – right, that title? Amazing like, title. Amazing title. And this book promises to really detail uh, fermentation around the globe. And I, I think that is something that has been missing in um, a collection. You typically get books that are like the X's and O's of fermentation in – the kitchen. There's obviously books about East Asian fermentation, like kimchi, etc. But the idea that that Sander has gone on this journey around the world, 
makes me extremely excited. I hope he joins the Taste Podcast at some point. Uh, I'd like to invite him on. Yeah, I mean, Sander has been writing about fermentation for years, and I'm really curious to hear what he makes of this whole kind of trend in fine dining towards fermentation. Yeah. The Nomas, the 11 Madison Parks of the world, kind of like hiring fermentation Mm -hmm. specialists, incorporating fermentation into every dish. I've got another book I'd like to, to mention um, it's called Springer Mountain, and it's by the journalist Wyatt Williams. He is uh, a former restaurant critic from Atlanta. He's written, I think, one article for Taste. I enjoyed working with him a couple years ago, and I, I wrote him a quick note about this book. But this is a book, a- as the materials promote, I've not read it, but it- it's to understand why we eat meat uh, and really about how cultures around the world slaughter animals and i think that's really interesting that he's you know worked at a slaughterhouse in georgia he's partook in indigenous traditions of whale eating in alaska so he's kind of really giving this kind of journalistic eye towards the consumption of animals so it's interesting yeah i mean like fermentation it's a really relevant topic right now even though of course it's been a tradition for thousands of years so i think that wraps it up do you have anything to add i don't think so i'm excited to dive in and cook from some of these yeah, me too. And I, I think it's uh, continue reading the pages of Taste and and checking out our newsletter because every Monday we're interviewing typically a cookbook author and, and servicing new recipes. But it's an exciting season and it's just great to talk to you, Anna. Great to talk to you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.